good morning. It's good to be with you guys. We're uh, week two of Advent. We're uh, spending Advent in the book of Isaiah uh, this, this year, just looking at passages in the book of Isaiah that point ahead to the coming of Christ. You know, um, for as long as uh, humanity has been in existence, people have been debating how to make uh, the world a better place, how to bring about peace since the beginning of time. Oftentimes I'll go and, and when we're uh, out doing evangelism, one of the things we'll often ask people is, is there any way we can pray for you? And when people kind of want to dodge the question and they don't want to share anything personal, they'll, they'll say, well, just pray for peace on earth. It's probably one of the most common things I hear. Yeah, every time there's, there's a mass shooting or there are, are opinions given on how to stop it. Every time there's a new virus spreading, there are promises made to put an end to it. Every time war breaks out, there are calls for new steps or policies to be put in place to end it or to prevent the next one. I think we can all agree that the world is broken and that it needs fixing, but everyone has different ideas on how to go about doing that, don't they? And the, the trouble is, is that no matter how many new ideas we implement, none of them seem to actually work. The world is still a broken place, and some might argue it's more broken now than it's ever been, despite all of our efforts. The one constant across world history is that despite the promise of leaders and presidents and kings, they cannot ultimately deliver. They cannot bring about the lasting peace and the flourishing that our hearts really long for. And that was certainly the case for the people of Israel when Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 11. Israel's kings had failed to lead the people to worship God. The nation had turned from God to worship idols, and so they were not flourishing. As a result of their apostasy, as, their, as a result of their spiritual adultery in judgment, God delivered Israel over to the Assyrians who took them into exile. And so once, like a tall, proud tree, they were now like a stump, like a shell of themselves. But it was out of this remnant, this stump, that a glimmer of hope would come. God promised to send a new king who would establish a kingdom of peace that would last forever. So Advent, that word Advent, which means arrival, is the time when we celebrate the arrival of this king. And his name is Jesus. And he's the only king worth following. And his kingdom is worth selling everything that you have so that you can enter into it. My desire this morning is really simple. I want to show you how glorious, how beautiful, how majestic King Jesus is, and I want you to see how incredible, how desirable His kingdom is, so that you'll desire nothing else than to go and follow Him and to live as a citizen of His kingdom. I want you to see that nothing else really matters in comparison, and we need that message because in the Christmas season, there's all sorts of things to get distracted with. Not bad things, but there's 
busy things, family coming in town and making the perfect Christmas dinner and getting or receiving the right gifts and all of that is well and good, but I want you to fix your eyes on what matters infinitely more than all of that this morning and we're going to see it in Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. The main point of the sermon this morning is that Jesus is the truly righteous king who came to establish a kingdom of perfect peace. Jesus is the truly righteous king who came to establish a kingdom of perfect peace. This passage is is broken down into two parts. Verses 1 to 5 describe the king, and verses 6 to 10 describe the kingdom. So let's read, and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and we'll dive in. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1, says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious." Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I pray now that you, like a surgeon on our souls, would begin to cut through, God, the bone and the marrow and expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart with your word, Lord. I pray, God, that you would skillfully attend to the needs of every single one of us with your word. Oh God, that you would comfort those who are in need of comfort this morning. God, that you would convict those who are straying from you. That you would draw us near to you, Jesus. That you would build up your church and that you would open the eyes of the blind. Those who are walking in darkness this morning, oh God. I pray that the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine into their hearts. And please use me, Lord, you know I'm, I'm a weak sinful man. I'm a jar of clay. I am nothing, oh God. But, but God, your word is everything. And so I pray that you would work through my weakness, Lord. Help me to get out of the way and to proclaim Christ in his kingdom so clearly so that everyone here hears with ears to hear. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, verses 1 to 5 our description of the king. And right there in verse 1, we, we read of this king's origins, of where he comes from. It says that there shall come forth a shoot 
from the stump of Jesse. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, Jesse was the father of King David. And so when it says the stump of Jesse, it's referring to David and his lineage. And Isaiah calls him a stump of Jesse because at this time in Israel's history, they had been humiliated. They had been taken into exile because of their sin. And so the kingdom or what was left of the kingdom of Israel was like a stump. Once they were like a tall proud tree and they had been cut down to size and there was hardly anything left of the kingdom of David. And so Isaiah says here, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now this would have also immediately called to mind for Isaiah's hearers the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to read that to you in verses 13 to 16, or at least a part of it. God made this promise to King David. He made a covenant to King David back when David was still alive, and here's what he said. He said, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you have to think about Isaiah's audience as they're, as they're hearing this. Okay, Isaiah's audience, the people of Israel, they are under God's judgment. They are in exile for their own wickedness and they are serving a foreign king. And so naturally the question that had to be going on in the back of their minds is, has God failed to keep his promise? God promised to David that his throne would be established forever. But in their present circumstances, it sure didn't look like that's what was happening. They're serving a foreign king. Their kingdom is like a shell of itself. It's been, it's been cut down to a stump. Has God turned back on his promise? In Isaiah chapter 11 is God's emphatic no to that question. His promises have not failed. God is faithful to keep His promises even when we're not. Out of the stump of what is left of Israel will arise a Savior King. And this isn't just any king. This is the King, the Messiah. It's noteworthy that in this passage we read that verse 1 describes Him as the shoot of Jesse and verse 10 describes Him as the root of Jesse. So the Messiah is both the shoot and the root. He created Jesse and he came from Jesse. That's because the Messiah, Jesus, is the God-man. Fully God and fully man. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. Theologians call it the incarnation where God, Emmanuel, he came and dwelt among us. And this is grace. This, this passage is telling us there is hope for spiritual stumps who have failed to bear fruit. That out of our failure, God has raised up a Savior. And not just any Savior. God Himself has entered into our mess. Verses 2 to 5 goes on to describe what King Jesus is like and how He rules. Verse 2 says that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. When a new king was crowned in Israel, he was anointed with oil to signify the outpouring on God's spirit, of God's Spirit on him 
to equip him to reign. Now, all of the other kings of Israel had failed, but God promised to send a Messiah, and that word Messiah means the anointed one. So this isn't just an anointed one. This isn't just any anointed king. This is the anointed one, the king of kings. And at his baptism, if you'll recall, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, when he came up out of the water, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit by the Father. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And there's a threefold description of the anointing of the Spirit in verse 2 that highlights the greatness of King Jesus and is meant to communicate his fitness to reign over the heavens and the earth. The second part of that verse says that, that he's, the spirit, he's filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, which communicates his wisdom to be able to govern. Jesus does not make mistakes. He does not need advice. He's never at a loss for what to do. He's never confounded. Isn't it funny how we often think that we know best? We can barely govern our own lives, let alone the universe. But we often trust ourselves in our own wisdom instead of Jesus, the one who's endowed with the spirit of wisdom. I mean, how many decisions have you made in your life in the last week alone without even thinking to consult God on what you should do? It's no wonder that we make a mess of things when we go our own way. And Jesus, the one who's endowed with the spirit of wisdom, has actually given us his word. And his wisdom is the source of his word so that we do not have to walk in darkness. Do you need wisdom? Are you trying to figure out where you're going wrong in life? Is there some great decision or conundrum that you're facing and you don't know which direction to turn? The one endowed with the spirit of wisdom has given us his very word if we'll just go to him. And then in James chapter 1, he invites us to come to him in prayer. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Open invitation to come to him. But we have to come and we have to be willing to wait. You don't need to grope around in the dark. Jesus is the eternally wise king that you can trust. He's also described as, as the spirit of counsel and might, which, which communicates his unmatched power to war against his enemies. Now, our great enemy is not Assyria. Our great enemy is the three-headed monster of sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus, our king, has already dealt all three a death blow. Jesus has disarmed Satan's accusations and removed our sin through his death on the cross. And he conquered death forever in his resurrection. As the song says, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. He will save his people to the uttermost and establish his kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. King Jesus is leading his church in the spiritual assault upon the gates of hell. And he's unstoppable. Just read through the book of Acts. Just think about, we're taking a pause in our journey through Acts, but just think about what's taken place so far. 
all of Satan's schemes, the persecution against the church, the false teachings, the temptations to sin, none of it can stop the advance of the gospel. Jesus has been endowed with the spirit of counsel and might, and He's also been endowed with the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the first part of verse 3 goes on to say that His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This refers to Jesus' ability to be the true spiritual leader that God's people need. But for Israel, the king was not only supposed to govern, but was supposed to act as the spiritual leader to God's people, leading them to worship Yahweh. Unfortunately, one after the other, Israel's kings went astray in their hearts. Even, even David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, committed grievous sin against God on multiple occasions. And which one of us can truly say that our soul's delight, our constant aim, is the fear of the Lord? None of us can actually say that. But Jesus is different. He's holy. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. During His earthly ministry, Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. He committed no sin. Jesus's, and Jesus' moral perfection isn't just a great example for us to follow. He actually fulfilled the law for us. The gospel is this, that Jesus the King came and He fulfilled the law for us. He was perfectly righteous. And then the King took off His royal righteous robes so that He could put them on filthy, unclean sinners like us. And He took our garments of filth, all of our sin, upon Himself on the cross. Do you see how wonderful and worthy of worship King Jesus is? Only Jesus is fit to be the King of Kings. He has no comparison and no rival. Ray Ortland is a pastor. He said, unlike every other leader in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. Well, while verse 2 describes his qualifications to be king, verses 3 to 5 describes how he rules. Verses 3 to 5 describe Jesus as a righteous judge. It says that he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. So Jesus sees through the heart of man. He's not fooled by outward appearances. He's not fooled by, by the show that we put on. He's not swayed by favoritism, and he doesn't give preferential treatment to the rich or to the strong. He's a righteous judge, and every single person one day is going to stand before him. Hebrews chapter 4 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every single deed done in the dark, every careless word spoken, every motive of the heart will be brought into the light on the last day. Now Jesus as the righteous judge, this description would be a terrifying reality were it not for the gospel. I remember 
One time as a child, for some uh, reason that I still don't understand, I decided it would be a good idea to take a brick and throw it through the window of my father's shed on our property. It sounded like a good idea at the time. And I remember the feeling of dread as I realized that I could not conceal my sin and that my father was coming home and that there was no way for me to hide what I had done. I was going to stand there naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, to, of whom I must give an account, Dad. Have you ever arrived at a point where dread has filled your heart at the realization that you have dishonored an infinitely holy God and the day is quickly approaching when you are going to stand before Him and nothing will be hidden. Everything is going to be completely out in the open. All of your motives, all of the deeds done in the dark, all of it's going to be exposed. You can fool other people for a time, maybe even for your entire life. But one day, the day that's quickly approaching, it's all going to be all out in the open. And you're going to answer to Him. There's really no way for you to grasp the gospel and the depths of God's grace until you realize just how wicked you are apart from Christ and just how helpless you are apart from Christ. You and I are absolutely hopeless unless God steps in and in his mercy somehow rescues us. And you and I are completely deserving of the wrath of God because of our sin. Because you see, it's not just what we've done. Yeah, you can compare yourself to your neighbor and go, but pastor, I mean, I understand I've sinned, but I'm not that bad. I mean, I know I've done some bad things, but gosh, like, I feel like there's a lot of other people who've done some way worse things than me. Does my sin really warrant the wrath of God, and friends, here's what you need to understand. It's not merely what we've done, it's whom we have sinned against. We have sinned against God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one that gives you your very breath all the time and who has given you his law and commanded you to love him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And I don't care who you are, and how moral you think you are. Every single day, every single one of us fails to do that. And we take the breath that God has given us and we use it to sin against Him. We take in the eyes that God has given us and we use them to look upon unclean things. We take the feet and the legs that He's given us and we use them to go to places that we shouldn't go. We take the hands that He's given us and we use them to hurt. We take the voice He's given us and we use them to, 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 to hurt people who are made in His very image, and we've done it again and again and again against the One who all day long is spreading out His arms saying, come to me, come to me, and we say no. And He's infinitely holy, and that is why our sin deserves an infinite punishment. That is why on the last day, those who refuse to come to Christ will be cast into hell, and it will be a perfectly just punishment, and every mouth will be stopped. And nobody will be able to look at him and say, that's not fair. That's an unjust punishment. Jesus is the righteous judge. But here's the deal, guys. The reason I want to press this home to you and help you understand the gravity of our sin, the severity of the wrath of God towards sin, is that it accentuates the beauty of the gospel. 
Because the gospel is that the righteous judge, he stepped down from his throne. And he was born as a baby. As a baby, I have a five-week-old daughter. She can't even barely keep her head lifted up. And yet Jesus, in that manger, couldn't even lift up his head. And yet at the same time, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. But it's not just that he entered into our mess. It's not just that he humbled himself and he came and dwelt among us. But then he grew up and he ate with sinners. And he hung out with prostitutes. And he healed lepers. And he, and he forgave tax collectors and sinners. And he raised the dead. And he loved perfectly. He loved the Father and he loved people without fail. But, but even though he did that, the reason that he came, the reason that, we, that he was born, the reason we celebrate Christmas was ultimately so that he could go to the cross. The righteous judge stepped out of heaven so that he could enter into humanity, so that he could be hung there on that cross in your place. So that instead of the wrath of God that you deserve for your persistent sin against the creator of the earth being dumped out on you forever, it could be dumped out on him so that God could dump out his grace on you forever. And that's freely offered to anybody who will receive it. That's the gospel. But you're not going to be able to receive it until you realize just how desperately you need it. You'll never be able to receive it until you've come to the point where you recognize, without Christ, I'm hopeless. I'm deserving of God's judgment. And I I need Jesus desperately. There's no other hope. Have you arrived there? Do you understand your helpless condition apart from Christ? I'm not asking you, do you go to church? I'm not asking you, um, do you believe that God exists? I'm not even asking you, do you believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead? Satan knows that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. The devils know that. Do you understand that he had to die on the cross for your sin? And that he was raised for your justification? And that you need to place your trust in Him and turn from your sin to be saved. If you've never done that, please don't let today pass you by without placing your faith and your trust in Jesus. Cling to Him. And, and, and you know, there might be some in this room who are sitting in your seats and maybe you're like I was. Um, 13, 14 years ago before I gave my life to Christ. And, and it was a process. And I remember, because uh, I grew up as a nominal Christian. I grew up going to church and, and the gospel message was just so familiar to me. I'd heard it so many times, but I had it, it, never apprehended it. I had never really understood the depths of my sin. And I remember knowing that something was missing, but not really know. okay, God, I, I want to trust in you, Jesus. I, I feel like I've prayed the prayer before. I've been baptized, but, but how? Like, what do I, what do, I do? I, I want to really know you. And my encouragement for you is, is continue to call out to him and cling to him and don't let go until he gives you a new heart until he changes you. 
Plead with Christ to come into your heart, to be your Savior. Make, say, Jesus, make me new. I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to go through the motions anymore. I don't want to just pretend that everything's okay anymore. Show me the true depths of my sin. Show me how beautiful you are, Jesus, because I want to follow you. And if you will go to him and you'll continue to call out to him, he will give you a new heart and he will change you. Now, for those of us who've trusted in Jesus, the day of his return isn't going to be a day to be feared. <laughs> it's going to be a glorious, wonderful day. In fact, the Bible teaches us to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because it's going to be the greatest day in the history of history. It's going to be the day when everything wrong is made right. In verses 6 to 10, describe it. Let's walk through this second half where we read the description of the kingdom of Jesus. Verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So here we're, we're seeing a reconciliation of old hostilities and the removal of fear. The wolf is dwelling with the lamb and the lion with the fattened calf. It's so safe that even a little child is leading around what used to be predators. When Jesus returns to make all things new, Isaiah is teaching here, there will be nothing to be afraid of anymore. Nothing to hurt us. No anxiety. Anybody struggle with anxiety sometimes? It's not going to be possible to be anxious. Have you ever, th just think about that. Think about that thought. It's worthy of meditation one day this week. Imagine a world where it won't be possible to be anxious or afraid. I can't wait. I can't wait. Verse 7 goes on, it says, The cow and the bear shall graze together, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. What in the world is going on here? Well, Isaiah is describing a, a very change of nature within these beasts themselves. The bears are grazing for grass, and the lions are eating straw. This is a return to Eden, when there was no death. In the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 teaches, Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We're going to have new resurrected bodies. There's not going to be any way that you can be hurt. Your body's not going to break down and decay. There's not going to be any more death. We will live forever. Anybody looking forward to that day? Anybody deal with pain, with constant pain? Anybody have uh, loved ones who've passed away in Christ that you miss, that you've parted with, that your soul longs to see again? Like, guys, it just keeps getting better and better. Verse 8 says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is describing the reversal of the curse. The serpent is no longer a threat. The child will play over the whole of the serpent. And verse 9 really summarizes it all. The Lord says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be nothing to be afraid of, no enemies, no sin. And the best part about King Jesus' kingdom of peace is that God will be there. And we will gaze upon the glory of His beauty. And we will see Him 
face to face. No government, no guru, no political system will ever be able to bring about peace on earth. King Jesus is the only one who can settle all hostilities. And here's some really good news. He's already begun to do it. At Jesus' first advent, his birth, the kingdom of God began to break into the world. The kingdom of God, you may have heard it described before, is, is, is an already and not yet. It's a present reality, but there's still a more uh, consummated future to come. During his ministry, Jesus ate with sinners. He healed lepers. He raised the dead. All signs pointing that the kingdom had arrived. And when he ascended, he poured out his spirit upon the church. And Christians have the spirit of Jesus dwelling in us. And even though we live in the world, we live under the reign of Jesus as our king. Philippians 3 calls us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the church is like an embassy. Now, no Christian or church is perfect. We're constantly in need of God's grace. But as recipients of grace, we ought to be able to extend that grace to one another. In Jesus' kingdom, old hostilities are put to rest forever. As people from all backgrounds, every tribe and tongue and nation, come together under the banner of the gospel of grace. And the local church ought to be a place where the world can come in and get a taste of what Jesus' kingdom of peace is like and what it's going to be like when it comes in its fullness. So I just want to encourage you this morning that if you're harboring bitterness towards another brother or sister in Christ, let me urge you to reconcile with them. If you've wronged a fellow believer, then I would encourage you to go and to make it right and seek forgiveness. This also applies to our homes. You're likely going to interact with unbelieving family members this Christmas season. And sometimes there can be friction within an extended family. But you have an opportunity to be a peacemaker, to extend grace even to those who are hard to love in your family because you are a recipient of great grace. So maybe ask yourself, what is one way that you could serve a difficult-to-love family member this Christmas season, to give them a a preview of what Jesus' kingdom of peace is going to be like when it comes in its fullness. Of course, we're still awaiting the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. When we look at the world around us, there's war, there's violence, there's hatred, and this, this, this kingdom of peace is not yet a reality on the earth, but it will be. It will be when Jesus, when Jesus returns. And during Advent, it's not just a good time to reflect on Jesus' first coming, but to reflect and remember that Jesus will come again. This world can be a very dark place, and at times it can be discouraging because it feels like the wicked are prospering. It can even maybe feel like you're looking around and it feels like the church is losing ground. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the king. Nothing catches him by surprise. And Advent is a time to rejoice. Because Jesus has come the first time, we have assurance that he's coming the second time. And our future is here described in Isaiah chapter 1, or 11, verses 1 to 10. 
And when Jesus returns, he will give us rest for our, our enemies. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And Jesus says in Matthew 5 that the meek will inherit the earth. So if you're feeling sorrowful under the weight of this broken world this Christmas season, set your hope on the return of Jesus, who will wipe away all of our tears. When you're tempted to despair, remember Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He said, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, one day soon and very soon, everything that this world calls and significant will dissolve away. Prestige, wealth, physical strength, but the kingdom of God will last forever. Fix your eyes on that. There's no other king worth serving and there's no other kingdom worth living for than Jesus the righteous king and his kingdom of peace.